If you have your Bible today, will you turn with me to the letter of James, or today's sermon text is printed there on page 10 in your bulletin. We're going to read the first 13 verses of chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he's promised to those who love him, but you've dishonored the poor man? Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you're called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, he's become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who's shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would just move now among us by your spirit in a very powerful way as we hear these truths which unearth so much of what is in our hearts. In Jesus we pray, amen. Well, we finally reached the part of James where he gets practical. And, it, you know, this is why we love James, right? This is why people would rather read James than Paul. We're modern people. Don't give us theory that's so old world. We want stuff that makes a difference. In the real world, you know, we North Americans have been activists from the very beginning. Finally, some practical stuff. Well, it's important to remember that James is a Jewish pastor, and what that means is he's not going to talk to us about our neighbor before he talks to us about God. He's not going to talk to us about changing the world before making sure we understand it. Making sure we understand what reality we are actually living in, what story we're actually a part of. He's going to be very insistent as a Jewish pastor about us getting that big stuff in place before we start getting practical. And that's what really chapter 1 was about. That's why we spent quite a lot of time there. And we saw in chapter 1 that there are these two big realities that frame everything else James wants to say in this letter. Two big realities. One is that he's writing in a new age of history, and he's writing about a new kind of humanity. He's writing to a new kind of humanity. A new age of history, and he's writing to new humans. What do I mean by the new age of history? Well, we've talked about the fact that the, the Jews have known, ever since the days of the prophet Daniel, that when Messiah comes... God is going to number the days of the pagan empires that rule the world, and he's going to finish them. What was probably a little bit shocking to the Jews of Jesus' time and James' time is that as God sweeps away the mighty pagan empires that have stood against God over the centuries, he is also going to sweep away the religious structures the, the, the structures of Judaism, actually, as it existed in Jesus' day, he's going to sweep all of them away because they have allied themselves with the imperial powers to make war against Messiah and to make war against his saints. That was a bit of a shock. That not just, you know, Babylon down to Rome was going to be swept away, but 
the Jewish nation that had made war against their Messiah also be swept away. But a new age of history is here. And in that new age of history, there's a new humanity that's emerging because out of the ashes of those world empires and apostate rebellious Judaism of that generation, God is bringing forth a new Israel. James in chapter 1, verse 1, calls them the 12 tribes that have been scattered and dispersed. These are the true Jews. They follow Jesus, their Messiah. He is their true priest, not the priests in Herod's temple anymore. He is their true king, the son of David. Like Abraham, their father, they steadfastly, this is all in chapter 1, they steadfastly are trusting and obeying Jesus through a lot of sufferings and temptations. They're not going after their own desires like Adam. And they're growing in that struggle of faith. They're growing into greater and greater maturity, greater wisdom, greater fitness for kingdom work. They're developing integrity in their identity as God's true people. And the other thing we saw in chapter 1 is that in this new humanity, their relationships are ordered, they're structured, not along lines of wealth and power, but they're rather ordered by the mutual relationship these people have to the true God, their Father. So the new history, the new humanity, and it's working out of those realities that James now gets practical. And he especially in chapter 2 is going to return to how those realities, the new history and the new humanity, how they play out socially. This text, I'm going to mostly work on verses 1 through 11 today, this text is straightforwardly about discrimination. It is straightforwardly about what James calls here partiality in how we view people and how we treat people, and whether that partiality, that discrimination, has any place in the kingdom of God. It really isn't hard to imagine the scenario that James gives here. I'll get a little crazy for a minute, but play this with me. Imagine that around five minutes to one, one Sunday afternoon here at Trinity, the door opens, and lo and behold, who should walk in but Billy Joel? He's home on Long Island, driving by on Jackson Avenue, and he has a weird moment of spiritual urging and decides, you know, I see people going into a church, I'm going to walk in and see what's going on. And about, you know, two minutes after Billy Joel walks in, as we're all trying to, like, absorb that, a very plain woman walks in. We've never, never seen her before. She, you know, not much, just not impressive, you know. She's kind of, clothes aren't awesome, not up to Long Island standards. She's not painted with makeup. She's not wearing tons of jewelry. She's just kind of plain, not super pretty, not dressed well, cross around her neck, clutching a sort of tattered Bible. Now, I want to ask you something. Who creates the buzz at Trinity that day? Where do we make sure Billy Joel is seated? Do we even make sure that she gets a particular seat? Do we even care? To whom are you sure to introduce yourself? And how do you introduce yourself? What's the talk afterward? Who gets the attention afterward? Like, how long before we're all standing around singing Piano Man? I actually think you guys would do well with this. I thought about this. I think actually at Trinity, I think a lot of you would, you, you, would, not, you would not blow this test. But it'd be real tempting, wouldn't it? And why would it be tempting to give Billy Joel all the attention and the shabby woman, you know, whatever? Because Billy Joel matters. He matters. He's a big player. She doesn't matter. I want to talk to you for a few minutes about why partiality is easy. And then I want to talk for a minute about why it's evil. Because that actually is a word James uses. Why is partiality so easy? And I want to get down in the roots of this for a minute. So kind of work with me. 
number of years ago, I read something that kind of blew my mind. This writer said that the central mystery about human beings is that every human being, including each one of you, is both a creature and a person. Now, those are very different things. A creature is completely dependent on its creator. You wouldn't even exist if you weren't created. And you would not exist any longer if your creator decided you were not going to exist any longer. You don't have any power to bring yourself into existence, and you have no power to make sure you keep existing. You're not a necessary creature. You could not exist very easily, and God could decide you're not going to exist. You have no power to hold yourself in existence. Your very being is given to you by God. The breath you're breathing in and out of your lungs, I hope, right now, is from God. Your, your blood is coursing through your arteries because God is making that happen right now. You are completely and utterly dependent upon him as a creature. Persons are different. Persons have what we call freedom. They are somewhat dependent, but they also have a certain amount of independence. They can act for themselves. They can think and choose and act freely. That's what it means to be a person. And that's, it's mysterious how humans are both creatures and persons at the same time. Now, take that distinction between a creature and a person and those two realities in our human existence, and now just go up a level, because those two things kind of they, they're, they're beneath the surface of another distinction in human life between the natural world and the cultural world. Nature, just the natural state of things, you know, what we call nature, nature comes directly from the hand of the creator. It is what it is because God made it what it is. He makes trees. He makes oceans. He makes mountains. He makes babies. He, he, he just, God just is constantly filling the world with creatures. And that's what we call nature. And every one of those creatures in nature has meaning and value that comes with being made by God. It's not like anybody assigns that value or that meaning to creatures. They, they have, nature has meaning because it's, it's, it's God's work. It's God's art. It's God's handiwork. But culture is different. Culture is what we do with nature. Culture is what we free agents, we human beings who are persons, do with nature. And we make all kinds of things, from the clothes you're wearing to the pew you're sitting on, to this microphone that I'm using, to this Bible. I mean, you know, everything. We take our hair and style it. We do things with nature. That's culture. We form ourselves. We form other things that God has made in nature, and we assign meaning and value to things in nature. Adam named the animals, right? That's a cultural act. Now, I want you to think about how we look at people at their level of nature. Think about people, now, human beings, at the level of nature. And by that I mean look at people on the basis not of what they've chosen to be, but what they've been created to be, just how God made them. And what you'll notice as you look at people in the realm of nature, the realm of God's working, is that there are lots of differences, aren't there? All kinds of differences. You know, there are different facial features, there are different size feet, there are different kinds of fingernails, there are, you know, just all kinds of things you can look at in nature. And there are a lot of differences, and not one of those things actually affects the intrinsic value and worth and meaning that people have. Because they're all made by God. That doesn't change no matter how different he makes them. They all bear God's image, even though they're very, very different. But culturally, let's get real, we assign people very different social meaning and social value on the basis of things that God created equal. The obvious one is skin color. Such a hot topic in our time. Skin color is a natural thing. God made people with different skin colors. 
It's created equal. Our skin color is culturally equal. At the level of the assigned social meaning, assigned social value, are they all, are they all equal? Not at all. So we create different social meaning, even to things that are in nature, but that really goes up a notch as we move from the realm of seeing people in their natural state to seeing people culturally. And now we're looking at people not in the realm of what God has made, differences God has made, but now we're looking at people in the cultural realm, in the realm of things people make, human making, and again, what do you see? Vast differences. Not differences now on this level in you know their size of nose and whether their ears are crooked, you know, not those kind of natural, you know, whether they have a particular IQ or other, you know, kinds of uh, gifts or whatever, you know, not, not at the level of nature, but at the level of culture. Now you see differences in, oh, I don't know, things like how much money they have, what kind of house they live in, what degree they have from what school, whether they walk in with a fine ring and expensive apparel or a shabby out-of-date shirt. Now we're looking at people and their differences in the realm of culture. And again, having this or that cultural thing. Oh, you went to that school. Oh, you drive that kind of car. Oh, you're wearing those kind of shoes. Oh, you have that sort of haircut. Oh, you live in that neighborhood. In that cultural realm, we once again assign cultural meaning to these things. We assign social meaning to these things. These things affect what is called your cultural capital. You will get into a school because you went to another school. You will not get into a school if you went to a different school, right? It actually affects your cultural power. I mean, this stuff gets handed down through generations. It affects what we call status. And beloved, this is so normalized by the structures and the routines of our social lives, it's invisible to us. You know, we instinctively see people who have greater wealth and greater power and greater beauty as more deserving of our attention, more deserving of our belief. If you turn on a news channel and the people on that news channel are well-dressed and speak well and have certain cultural look to them, and then you turn on a different news channel and it looks like nobody's changed clothes since 1963, you're going to believe the people on the first show. There's going to be an instinctive, at least tendency to think they probably know what they're talking about more because we instinctively dial into wealth and power and beauty these people, it's more instinctive. I mean, if you thought about it, you'd probably say, no, it's not true. But instinctively, that person probably deserves attention. That person probably is believable. That person should be deferred to. Certain people walk into the room with a certain carriage, and they just, they, they work the room. If I asked you, why should you take that person seriously? Why should you take him seriously? Why should you take her seriously? You would immediately start looking for status cues to affect your answer. You'd be looking for the trappings of competence. I'd look for a lab coat. I look for an expensive watch. I look for confident body language. I look for the fact that your hair is well cut. You just, this is instinctive. It's invisible to us. There have been some crazy experiments done with what is called lookism. People who have artificially disfigured their faces and then gone out in public. Sometime, artificially disfigure your face, go out in public and see what happens to your social value. People who have artificially aged themselves, they look 40 years older than they actually are, they go out in public, watch what happens the way you get service at a counter. This stuff absolutely has social meaning, absolutely has cultural capital attached to it. It's, in, it's just part of how we operate. And what is easy to miss are the judgments that are hidden in these social hierarchies. 
And this comes from something very real, because if you watch people at the level of culture, stuff people do with nature, you're going to notice something important. You're going to notice that certain strengths and certain skills and certain efforts tend to produce better results. In the realm of culture, the reality is you work harder, you usually get further ahead. If you are really intelligent, you're going to have better chances. In the realm of culture, if you're strong, you probably are going to win the race. That's how athletics works. And we notice that. God has made a law of sowing and reaping in the world of culture. That's real. But, beloved, please hear this. From that very real and legitimate observation, it is a short but nasty step to the notion that because a person doesn't seem to have risen very far in the world, it must be because he or she is deficient physically, intellectually, even morally. Let's be honest. Don't you really think the beggar's a bum? And it gets worse, these judgments. Because if you're a loser, or you look like a loser, here's what I know about you. You're a potential social liability to those of us who do not want to be losers. Thank you very much. If I meet a loser, I've got a problem. If I hang with losers, I could end up being a loser my social capital could be brought down by the fact that I'm hanging with those people. And it's really not hard to see how this could happen in a scattered, marginalized, persecuted church like these readers are living in. These are Jewish followers of Jesus who have been kicked to the margins of a culturally powerful Judaism. They are on the outs of the empire. They are on the outs of the most dominant religious institution of the time associated with God himself from the Old Testament. And humanly, they, this little group of people reading this letter, they are still a very per peripheral movement of mostly really unimpressive people. I mean, when you're like main guy as a fisherman, you know, I mean, ugh, go back to school. And how welcome would it have been in this little group for one of the elites to walk in? One of the elites to come in and show interest. Maybe one of those, as James describes in verses 6 and 7, maybe some of these rich, powerful people who have, who they actually, they hold the power, level, power levers that have been used against the church. They're the ones who have the power to oppress, verse 6, and drag people into court and win and can blaspheme the name of Jesus because they've got the power to kill people for following Jesus. Wouldn't it be awesome if somebody like that walked in, sat down, and acted like they were interested? I mean, could this help us? <laughs> could this help us get ahead? Maybe we're not going to be quite so marginalized and downtrodden anymore. It'd be easy. Partiality is easy. Why is it evil? And James said that's evil. He says, verse 4, he says, listen, Aren't you making distinctions among yourselves and judging now with evil thoughts? So you think about Billy Joel and the poor lady. You think about, you know, the rich man in the, with the gold ring here and the guy in the shabby clothing. Here's the question. This is the question we have to start with. What does Jesus think of these people? What does the Father of Lights think of these people? Let me just very briefly talk about the law of the kingdom and then the, the gift of the poor. Look at verse 8. Notice the law of the kingdom. This is Jesus' kingdom. It's the Father's kingdom. And you'll notice there's a royal law in verse 8. In God's Israel, in God's family, in God's kingdom of priests, 
the royal law, what is it? Somebody tell me, what is the royal law? The, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, by the way, regardless of status, because the royal law was pretty clear. You didn't just love the wealthy and the powerful. You loved the stranger. You loved the orphan, the widow, the Levite, the cripple, the blind. Love your neighbor regardless of status. That's the royal law of the kingdom of God. And the principle underlying that law is this, beloved. It is that what matters about people is their relationship to God. That's the underlying principle. Why do we love people regardless of status? Because what matters about them in this kingdom is their relationship to God, their relationship to the king. Every human being you meet is made in God's image. That's the fundamental thing that means they matter. And in the body of Christ, everyone who names the name of Jesus is an heir of God's eternal kingdom, a child of God. That's why they matter. That's the principle. And not to live by that principle, James goes on to say in verses 9 and 10, to show partiality, to make distinctions between people and decide you matter, you don't. It is a transgression. You are sinning, he says in verse 9, in doing that. And in fact, you are, even though it doesn't seem like partiality is as bad as, say, adultery and murder. Because it was on to say, if you, if you violate this kingdom, this royal law, you violate this law of love at even one point. It doesn't, you've, you've broken the whole thing. You say, I'm no murderer. I'm no adulterer. I, you know, I, I kind of mind my P's and Q's when it comes to the law of God. I, true, but you all live by status symbols, beloved. I mean, can we be real about that? I do. These internal judgments about people and dividing people and thinking about people differently and kind of weighing their relative value and their relative you know, social capital, it is a violation of the law of love in this kingdom. In fact, I would say it is an acid test. Partiality is an acid test of what James, well, throughout his letter, is going to refer to as worldliness. We've talked a lot about what is the world. It's not creation. It's not human culture the world James will eventually say if you're a friend of the world you're an enemy of God the world is the standards and priorities of rebellious humanity rebellious humanity have certain standards by which they judge things and certain priorities by which they act and the question of worldliness is whether our standards and priorities in the body of Christ are those of rebellious humanity or the standards and priorities of our king and think about worldly standards and priorities. What is ultimate for rebellious humanity? Think about this with me, beloved. This moment in our nation's history, this is absolutely the thing. Whatever other political problems absorb your time and news feeds, this is the thing. What is ultimate for rebellious humanity is humanity. And so with nothing beyond themselves by which to measure themselves, how do you rebellious humans measure themselves? They measure themselves by what? By themselves. That is the fundamental political problem in a society that has rejected God. With no sacred order to ground the social order, with no relationship to God to ground our relationships to one another, there is finally no reason to assign anyone value or meaning except insofar as they are useful. You matter because we say you matter is the end of social justice. Because there's no sacred order. We are a nation without a father. Therefore, we are a nation that cannot be brothers and sisters. And James goes right after in the church, we're not the world. We're not the world. 
That's not how we treat people. It's not how we view people. Partiality shows you're not a doer of the word. Oh, but I go to church every Sunday, Pastor. Sure you do. But doing the word, doing the gospel of the kingdom is all about what happens when your father's value system clashes with a hostile value system in your social life. That's when you find out if you're a doer of the word. And speaking of that, more positively, there's the law of the kingdom. Look at verse 5. Let's just think momentarily about the gift of the poor, the gift of the poor. What's so special about the poor? Listen, verse 5, my beloved brothers, God has made the poor, he's chosen the poor in the world to be what? Rich in faith. It's interesting. James doesn't say here the poor should start a revolution because they can never truly stand tall until they share wealth. That, I think, is the, one of the fundamental errors of what is called liberation theology. For all of its insights, the idea of liberation theology is that you, the poor can never truly stand tall with dignity until they share wealth, worldly wealth. That isn't exactly what James says here, and he doesn't even say that those who have more should give to the poor. He'll get to that later in the chapter. This is very interesting, without any spiritualizing of things so we can just ignore economic realities. I mean, James is going to talk about the fact there are economic, this-worldly realities that people need help and care, and the poor must be relieved. That's a command of God. But what he's saying here is without spiritualizing all that away, he does go after something that is really, really important, and that is what the poor already possess before they get any wealth. While they are still poor, he points us to what they already possess, a wealth of which the world knows nothing, and that is the wealth of what? The wealth of faith. And this is what I mean. Poor Christians experientially understand their relationship to God better than the rest of us. Because, see, he's all they've got. They know they need daily bread. If you're poor, you know you need daily bread. See, the rest of us talk about it. We, we say the Lord's Prayer. When's the last time you ever had a single day of your life that you were not able to put bread on your table? Some of you maybe have had that experience. Most of us, it's completely foreign to us. The poor understand. They know what it's like to pray, because if God doesn't give them daily bread, they're going to starve. They have that kind of relationship with God. They know they're dependent. See, we talk about dependence, and then we go right back after we talk about our dependence to all the stuff we actually depend on. You know how you know that? You know that because when God shakes the stuff you're depending on, you're desperate. But the poor have nothing else to lean on. They have God. That is it. And they cry to him. In faith, they know God is everything. They know not to have God is to be destitute, to be wretchedly destitute. They live that every day of their lives. They know God in that way. And James says, you know, in a sense, they ought to be at the front teaching the rest of us who just talk about these things. The poor brother, the poor sister probably has more faith than I do. Why? Because the poor doesn't have nearly so many potential rivals for God as I do. I talk about the fact that God is my hope and help, and then I go back to relying upon my money and my reputation and my job and my friends and all the other things in my life. There, you know, because you, you take that stuff away from me, and I'm just like going to pieces. And by the way, he says, they're heirs of the kingdom which God has promised to those who love him, and the poor do love him. These poor believers, this guy in the shabby shirt, don't let's forget, 
James says that when we all inherit the fullness of God's kingdom in days to come, Jesus did say many who are last will be first because they lived by faith. Many who are first are going to be last. Important to think about. There are a lot of fairy tales in which the fairy godmother shows up in the guise of an old, decrepit, destitute woman. Things are not as they appear. That broken down old man is the wizard. Well, there are lots of real life stories in which the Son of God, the Lord of glory, shows up as the guy in the shabby shirt. You love on him. You're loving on Jesus. You honor him. You're honoring Jesus. You dishonor him. You're dishonoring Jesus because things are not as they appear. So let's have a look around. Who matters in here? And why? Amen. Lead us to, the law, to obey the law of the kingdom because it is liberating, O oh God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.